Well, for this Ladenier class, uh, shall we bow in prayer? Father, we are on the brink of closing the book on the career of David as we conclude our consideration of 1 Kings 2. But we acknowledge that this book is not closed in a very real way. It is a book that is open to the sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus, who read in these pages the portrait imperfect and even sinful and imperfect portrait of their sinless and perfect Savior. We are grateful that the son of David, who is your dear son, O Heavenly Father, rules from an eternal throne and has brought in an everlasting kingdom which will never decay nor be destroyed. And so, O Lord, draw our hearts in that open book manner into the book of life, into that scroll which is laid up before the throne of God, a scroll which is at the feet of the eschatological David, even our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. First Kings chapter two. <clears throat> These last words of David to Solomon complement the last words of David in Second Samuel twenty three. Is our narrator tying David's final words from his pen? to his dying words from his lips. The reciprocal parallels are striking. Indeed, they are remarkably emphatic. David, as devout, ruling in the fear of the Lord, 2 Samuel 23, verse 3, with 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, is also David as just, righteous requiter of guilty blood for innocent blood. 2 Samuel 23.3 with 1 Kings 2.5 and 6.8 and 9. And this is also David in covenant, in covenant with God's promise to his house, his seed, his sons, Second Samuel 23, verse 5, with First Kings 2, verse 4. And yet, the echo of David's last words here captures the last words of another magnificent servant of the Lord. I am going the way of all the earth. So said Joshua. Joshua 23:14 as David now says 1 Kings 2 verse 2 Think on that for a moment The Jesus of the Lord 
and the Christ of God together declare their approaching death. Did not the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, also declare his approaching death? Jesus, Joshua, Messiah Christ, anticipates his death the way of all the earth, all who die under the curse. Joshua's body interred in his tomb. David's body interred in his tomb. But Joshua, Jesus, Lord Christ, Messiah, this once-for-all servant of the Lord, this once-for-all son of the Heavenly Father, this Jesus, God has raised from the dead and has made him both Lord and Christ now and forevermore. Think on it for a moment. Joshua, David, Jesus Christ bound together by the echo of Genesis 3. But the one who is eschatological savior and eschatological David is also eschatological Adam because he is the eschatological son of God. Think on it for a moment. These last words of David to Solomon are retrospective, retrospective of the man and his life before the face of God. We have here a dying confession of faith from the lips of David, retrospective of his living profession of faith from his lips and his pen and his lyre. What legacy of trust in the Lord would David charge his son with? With keeping the Lord's ways? With keeping the obligations of the Lord's statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, his testimonies, keeping the law of Moses as the rule and standard of his life. Are not all these obligations a mirror of the character of God himself? A reflection of God's moral being his ethical nature. Are not all these commandments of the law of Moses a mirror of heaven, a reflection of the ways of the kingdom of heaven? Does not David encourage Solomon to live morally, ethically, obediently, to live out of heaven, out of God's character, God's holy, moral character.
keep the obligations of the Lord your God. Keep his commandments. This is the way of life. This is the way of the throne of the king of heaven. In addition to a final confession of faith, we have a final disposition of righteous justice. Joab, the sons of Barzillai, Shimei are all to receive just requital. The man Joab's blood is to be shed, for he shed man's blood. Shimei is to be cursed, for he cursed the Lord's anointed. And the sons of Barzillai are to be seated in kindness at Solomon's table in Jerusalem in return for their kindness in setting a table for David in Mahanaim. While it might appear justice has been too long delayed in the case of Joab, nonetheless, David does not let his own gray hairs go down to the grave without rendering the final judgment on a murderer and a blasphemous cursor. Is this not, in fact, what the statutes and obligations of the law of Moses required? The commandment of the law of God through Moses was as the commandment of the law of God through Noah. Premeditated murderers are to be executed. Genesis 9, 6, Numbers 35, 33. In addition, the commandment of the law of God through Moses was, Thou shalt not curse a ruler of your people, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. David commands his son Solomon, commends him to the law of Moses and the commandments of God. The just execution of those commandments and laws is also part of the obligation with which he charges him. If we are tempted to conclude that David is being nasty and vindictive here, let us keep in mind that no less than the divinely inspired Apostle Paul endorses capital punishment for murder. In Acts chapter 25, verse 11, he says that if he has done anything worthy of the capital punishment, he does not refuse to submit to the capital punishment. Note also his comment about the civil ruler bearing the sword of capital punishment in Romans 13, verse 4. And he also quotes the ongoing validity of you shall not curse a ruler of your people in Acts chapter 23, verse 5. To object to David's righteous judgment here in 1 Kings 2, 
5 and 6, 8 and 9, is to object to the New Testament Apostle Paul, is to object to the law of God, which is continuous on this point from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era. If David is regarded as some primitive barbarian, then so is the God of Genesis 9-6, Numbers 35-33, and Exodus 22-28. You see, there are no impenitent premeditated murderers in heaven. There are no impenitent cursers of rulers in heaven. All murderers are outside the city of gate, city of God, as is everything that maketh a curse. It is outside the kingdom of heaven. David's final judgment on Joab and Shimei is but a faint reflection of the final judgment of God who will render to all according to their deeds, to murderers the eternal death of hell, to blasphemous cursers the eternal company of the arch-blasphemer and chief cursor of the ruler of the cosmos, a hellish pit of never-ending curses, hurled against the ever-burning flames of Satan's abyss. Protology and eschatology are inseparably intertwined in the word of God, inseparably intertwined throughout the whole history of redemption. Turning our attention to the structure of this chapter, It would appear to be rather straightforward, easy, and obvious. David's address to Solomon and his death, verses 1 to 12. Adonijah's request and his death, verses 13 to 25. Abiathar's reprieve and not his death, verses 26 to 27. Joab's flight and his death, Verses 28 to 35, Shimei's oath and his death, verses 36 to 46. It would appear to be straightforward. But let us consider the following. What is the first name that you find in the chapter? David, and what is the last name that you find in the chapter? Solomon. Suggestive, is it not? Suggestive that the first and last name that frame the chapter are the transitional names. The names in transition of the royal succession reflected in the names of the father and his royal successor son. And as you go back to the first chapter of First Kings, you will notice that the first name that you read in the first verse of chapter 1 is 
David, and the last name you read in verse 53 is Solomon. Our narrator is symmetrically lining out his transitional narrative. Now, let's observe verse 1 again of chapter 2. And then let's look down at verse 12 of chapter 2. As you examine those two verses, what do you notice about the name sequence in verse 1? You've already answered the question, what's the first name? David. Okay. Any other name appear in that first verse? Solomon. Okay. Now in verse 12. Solomon and David. What do we call that? Christina? It is a chiasm. Okay. There is the Greek letter chi or a chiasm, the crisscross pattern. But as we line it out in a linear fashion, we see what one of the purposes of the chiasm is. We find that the name David is mirrored in verse 1 and 12. The name Solomon is mirrored in verse 1 and 12. In fact, if we would place this pattern in a mirror, we would see this pattern reflected. The chiasm is a mirror paradigm. So that this unit, verses 1 to 12, is a mirror reflection of David in Solomon, and Solomon reciprocally in David. Narrator has constructed a chiastic mirror here in order to frame the father in the son and the son in the father. That should ring other narrative bells in your mind, in your memory, It should cast you back to 2 Samuel 7 again and the promise that God made to David and to his house that he would be a father unto David's seed and David's seed would be a son unto him. Profound narrative ripple. And we also notice the following in verse 13. The first name that you read in that verse is anyone? Adonijah, verse 24. Last name that you read in that verse, Adonijah, so that our narrator has placed a frame of Adonijah around the incident of Abishag. Now verse 25. Notice the sequence in that 25th verse. The term king 
And then the name Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Looking down to verse 35, notice the sequence in the verse. The term king and the name Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. Benaiah and the king, King Solomon in this case, frame the Joab incident. Our narrator is bracketing the incidents that we observed in our simple outline earlier. Within this larger bracket, verses 25 to 35, there is a smaller frame. You will notice in verse 26, Abiathar priest. In verse 27, Abiathar priest. Abiathar frames the incident which focuses upon his banishment. And now verses 36 and 44. The sequence in verse 36 is the term king again. Shimei said, verse 44, the term king and Shimei said. The exchange between King Solomon and Shimei frames the final incident in the narrative, the dispatching of Shimei, the blasphemous cursor. These framing devices follow the basic outline we detected earlier, David's charge to Solomon, 1 to 12, the Adonijah intrigue, 13 to 24, Joab's demise, 25 to 35, Shimei's folly, 36 to 44. The Abiathar banishment stands inside the Joab frame for reasons arising from Adonijah's usurpation in chapter 1, which I will detail later. However, we notice a formulaic refrain which places a literary staccato upon the discrete narrative portions of this chapter. It is the sentence, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, fell upon him so that he died or put him to death. This refrain concludes the Adonijah pericope, verse 25, it concludes the Joab pericope, verse 34, and it concludes the Shimei pericope, verse 46. Following David's instructions to Solomon, the conspirators against the throne of David and Judah are dispatched by Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, at the command of the king. It is significant that although David does not specify Adonijah, nevertheless, Solomon unmasks his half-brother's ploy as an assault upon his throne. The same traitorous crime indulged by Joab and Shimei. It is the throne of David, now the throne of Solomon, which is under attack from this band of treacherous traitors. 
And as David instructs Solomon to deal with two of them, so Solomon himself quickly deals with one who is the very reincarnation of his other half-brother, Absalom. Like father, like son? Well, in principle, but this son will not dally. This son will not hesitate with a base traitor maneuvering for his throne. Adonijah is executed as immediately as his treachery is revealed. Solomon will nip it in the bud. He will not coddle it. Which alerts us to another motif or Leitwerter running through this chapter. It is a motif which will be three featured throughout the entire corpus of first and second kings and beyond the theme of the throne of David. Anchored in God's covenant promise to David and his house in second Samuel seven, the continuity and perpetuity of a Davidide on Judah's throne is the barometer of the kings of Israel and Judah down to the destruction of both kingdoms. It is for the Lord's sake and for the sake of David his servant that God extends the seed of David on the throne of Judah to 586 B.C. And that motif echoes and re-echoes itself through first and second kings. And it is for the Lord's sake and for the sake of David, his servant, that we read, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. Luke chapter 1, 31 233, the promise of the Davidide returns. Protology and eschatology interface once more in the history of redemption, only this time in the angelic announcement to Mary, this time once and for all. Once and for all. Here in 1 Kings 2, we observe the word throne in the following verses. Verse 4, throne of Israel. Verse 12, throne of David. Verse 19, two times the word throne. Verse 24, throne of David, verse 33, and verse 45, throne of David. Notice, if you will, that the throne of David and Solomon appears in every sub-narrative in this chapter. Twice in the death scene with Solomon, verses 1 to 12, Three times in the Adonijah scene, verses 13 to 25. 
once in the Joab scene, verses 28 to 35, once in the Shimei scene, verses 36 to 46. At issue in each of these scenes, according to our narrator, is the establishment of David's throne in his son and the threat to that throne establishment. Notice that term established in verse 12, verse 24, and verses 45 and 46. Once again, a term is repeated in the death scene, verses 1 to 12, in the Adonijah scene, verses 13 to 25, and twice in the Shimei scene, verses 36 to 46. But you say to me, it did not appear in the Joab scene. The word established did not appear in the Joab scene in verses 28 to 35. Or did it? Or did it? Let's look at verses 33 and 45 for a moment. What do you notice is the first name that appears in or the name that is associated with the word throne in verse 33? David. As we pointed out with this light verter, David's throne and its succession is at issue here. Now, in verse 45... Look for that very same pattern. And what do you see first? Throne. And then you see the name David. And what pattern do you have? You have a chiasm again. All right, now after David and his throne in verse 33 are mentioned... Look for the phrase that has the Lord in it. And what do you find? What do you read? Look for the phrase that has Lord in it, and what do you read? Forever from the Lord. All right, look for that phrase in verse 45. Pardon? Before the Lord forever. What do we have? Another chiasm. All right, now, in between the two chiasms, okay, what is the phrase about the throne of David forever uh, from the Lord? What is 
clause that joins those two phrases. That that throne may be not in verse 33. That that throne may be in peace forever from the Lord. Now, in verse 45. What is the conjunctive phrase? That that throne may be blessed. Blessed. It'll be established, correct? And what is it to establish the throne of David, but to establish it in shalom, in peace? These are symmetrical phrases. In other words, the establishment of the throne of David and Solomon, which is explicit in verse 45 in the Simei incident, is also implicit by parallel symmetry with the peace that is going to come as a result of David's throne being forever before the Lord. Notice this brilliant and masterful chiastic mirror between those two incidents here, those two incidents here, and what is in between is symmetrically parallel. The establishment of David's throne is indeed found explicitly, even symmetrically, in each of the narrative subsections of this chapter. In fact, our narrator has skillfully crafted a perfect mirror chiasm into the end of the Joab scene and the Shimei scene so as to mirror the symmetry of Solomon's declaration, the throne of David, his father, is established in the peace, shalom, of the throne of the son, Solomon, where shalom in verse 33, is a pun on the name Shalomo, Solomon. No peace established in the transition from father to son unless Adonijah is dealt with, unless Joab is dealt with, unless Shimei is dealt with, no peaceful establishment of the throne of father and son unless those with blood in their hearts and blood on their hands are removed. No peace unless those who hate peace unto blood are isolated and removed. Thus, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon, verse 46. David's life is ebbing away, trickling away into God's eternity. 
How old is he? He is 70 years of age. For the days of our years are threescore and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Psalm 90 verse 10. David poised to fly away to the house of the Lord. To the dwelling place of the Lord most high the shepherd of Israel. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, the house of my shepherd, Lord, forever. Psalm 23, verse 6. He is buried. He is buried in the city of David, verse 10, not Bethlehem, the home of his fathers. He sleeps with his fathers in death, but he is buried in the city which bears his name. His tomb was still extant in the days of Nehemiah, around 445 B.C., Nehemiah 3.16. And the Apostle Peter mentions the tomb of David in his magnificent Pentecost sermon, Acts 2.29, in order to underscore the stark contrast between the tomb of David occupied with his earthly remains and the tomb of Jesus vacant and empty of the risen Lord, now exalted to the right hand of God the Father. If you look at your map on the second page of your handout, you can imagine the location of David's tomb, which was probably situated south of the spring of Gion, outside the eastern wall of the city of David. It is mentioned also by Josephus, the first century A.D. Jewish historian, the tomb probably disappearing in the Bar Kokhba rebellion in Palestine between 132 and 135 A.D. The tomb of David, known even to the returning exiles in the days of Nehemiah, and pointed out by the Apostle Peter by the middle part of the late uh, half of the first century of the Christian era, and likely still there until Hadrian's troops smashed Shimon Bar Kokhba, the son of the star who had driven Rome into the Mediterranean for two years, established a rebel kingdom in Palestine. Perhaps it was at that time that the tomb was destroyed and looted finally. But yet, we must leave a slight question mark over that because... 
all the archaeology on the east side of Jerusalem has not been completed. Before we move on, let's remind ourselves of the year of David's death and Solomon's accession. What year are we in? Nine seventy or nine seventy one BC, thank you, Kay. And one more minor note. Chapter one told us that Solomon took the throne before David died. King in my place, as David put it in chapter one, verse thirty five. One to sit on my throne today while my own eyes see it as Jonathan, son of Abiathar, reports David's words to Adonijah in chapter 1, verse 48. This means that Israel had a co-regency, a co-regency for a few days, perhaps a few months, a co-regency prior to the death of David. David and Solomon together Equally, co equals equally sharing joint regency over the nation. The fact that this pattern inaugurates the book of Kings is suggestive. Co regency will play a large part in the reigns of the kings of both Israel and Judah. It is a fact. Co-regency, which helps explain the apparently contradictory numbers given in kings for the reigns of the Hebrew monarchs. Co-regency is part of the solution to those apparently conflicting numbers or years of their reigns. The fact that these numbers are reconciled and shown to be historically accurate, not contradictory, is due to the labors of a late 20th century scholar named Edwin R. Teal, who worked out the chronology in his famous book, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings. Now, this is not a book for the faint-hearted. It is extremely complex and technical, But nonetheless, it is a classic defense of the historical accuracy of the reigns of the kings in the northern and southern kingdom based upon an integration of Assyrian archaeological texts and the biblical numbers. It is a tour de force in its own right because it was written to defend the accuracy and inspiration of the Book of Kings and Chronicles. We turn now to the encounter between Adonijah and Bathsheba. The repartee in this narrative, or sub-narrative, verses 13 to 25, is a literary delaying action. She said, he said, he said, She said, and our master narrator builds the level of suspense 
in this drama. Adonijah's peaceful approach is, again, a pun on the root for the name Solomon. So behind the Shalom facade, Adonijah has his sights set on Solomon. Does Bathsheba detect this in her query? Or why else would she interrogate Adonijah about his motives? Does she recall his previous anti-coronation charade in chapter 1? A charade in which she played a principal role at the behest of God's prophet Nathan. Does Adonijah not recall her role in countering his original plot to supplant her son? Or does Adonijah not know about her role in nullifying his royal ambitions in chapter 1? Is Adonijah as naively ignorant of Bathsheba's part in his rejection as Bathsheba is now naively ignorant of his part in the potential ejection of Solomon from the throne of Judah? Are we dealing with two naifs here? What lies beneath this repartee? What is driving the motives of Adonijah, of Bathsheba? Our narrator does not tip his hand, and so he leaves us to consider the drama in several ways. If we read this initial encounter in verse 13 as a straightforward interview between Haggis' son and Solomon's mother, Haggis' son and Solomon's mother, did you catch that? Did you catch that little hint there? in the way the narrator makes the maternal connections, son, mother, mother, son, there's that chiasm again. Oh, you may begin to watch out for chiasms in the narration because they're there. If we read this verse in straightforward fashion, we have a mirror, a chiastic mirror of naivete. Do you come in peace? Peace. I have something to say? Speak. Straightforward narrative dialogue. And Adonijah speaks, verse 15 ostensibly pouring out his tragic and disappointed past, his sad tale of being let down from his dreams, and lays upon this mother's heart the heart 
of the mother of the king his tale of woe. What better way to the heart of the king than through the pleas of his mother? Adonijah takes the most auspicious route to gratifying his wishes. The mother of Solomon will intercede for me where I might simply turn him off were I to appear in person. Straightforward motivation on Adonijah's part. And Bathsheba? Bathsheba bends a mother's attentive ear to a plea from her son's brother. An attentive ear to a love story. Don't all mothers love romance? And here's romance right in front of Bathsheba. Adonijah wants to get married. Lovely, beautiful Adonijah wants to marry beautiful Abishag. And what a beautiful couple they will make in a lovely romantic wedding ceremony. Straightforward narrative reading. I want Avishag for my wife. Ask your son for me. He won't refuse you. And Bathsheba agrees, I will ask him for you. So, straightforward narrative reading. Bathsheba approaches Solomon. And he greets her with honor. He greets his approaching mother with honor, esteems her with a throne chair set beside him and bends his ear to the request of his pleading mother. He even assures her he will not refuse her request when he hears it But when he hears it, her romantic request, when he hears it, let your brother Adonijah have Abishag as his wife. When Solomon hears his mother ask that, he does refuse her. And now we realize we have been misreading the narrative. We have been misreading the narrative as a straightforward report of innocent repartee. Let him have Abishag, and Solomon fumes, ask the kingdom for him as well. Solomon does not entertain this request in straightforward fashion. He reads Adonijah's request through his mother as treason, and murderous treason at that. Solomon detects motives in Adonijah which contain narrative ripples, narrative ripples of Adonijah's implacable character. Notice carefully what Solomon says in verse 22. Number one, he is my older brother. Older brother, notice that. Number two, 
Ask for him, even for him, for Abiathar. Number three, ask for him, even for him, for Abiathar and for Joab. Solomon is not naive. We may have been naive readers, but at verse 22, that excuse is blown away. Solomon sees through the subterfuge, the romance, the facade, the plot, because Solomon sees the wickedness of his brother's heart in this veiled request. Remember chapter 1, verse 52, if wickedness is found in Adonijah, he will die. And Solomon unmasks the wickedness in Adonijah in the latter's request for the woman of David's bed. Take the woman from David's bed and take the crown from David's head. Take the woman from David's bed and take the crown from David's head. Adonijah will be Adonijah. Adonijah in character, posturing street parade and preening charade at Gihon, chapter 1, now posturing parade before Bathsheba and mendacious charade with Avishag. Adonijah has no more relinquished his designs. He has no more relinquished his designs on David's crown, Solomon's throne, than he has disengaged himself from his co-conspirators, Abiathar and Joab. This is grasping rebellion once more, subtle, devious, serpentine, this Adversary, brother of mine, seed of the serpent, would rise up and unseat me, even murder me with his murderer Joab in tow and my father's virgin in bed. This isn't a wedding request. This is a flat-out death threat. A veiled attempt to murder me and murder you too, my mother, through grasping my father's virgin attendant. Solomon's penetrating wisdom peers through the facade into the evil heart of his older brother. Notice that term, Adonijah still holds that he should be king. He should be king because he is the next oldest in the line of succession. Solomon sees into the evil heart of his older brother and Adonijah's ongoing, his ongoing, never-ceasing collusion with the rebel conspirators of chapter 1, Joab and Abiathar. We must read the heart of Adonijah as Solomon does. For out of the heart proceed murders, covetousness, evil desires. 
And there is no question that Solomon discerns Adonijah's ploy as a capital threat. A capital threat which he treats with the capital punishment. There is no innocent lover's request from Adonijah here, else it would not have received the death penalty. Adonijah is executed because his wicked heart was intent upon executing King Solomon. The sword of Benaiah falls upon Adonijah in defense of the life of King Solomon. Solomon spared in the death of Adonijah. For if he had gotten Abishag, he would have had Solomon's throat next. That is what is driving Adonijah. Uh, Now, uh, during the break, uh, Art raised a question about whether Bathsheba is naive or not. So let's let's follow Art's lead and let's take a look at Bathsheba. Is Bathsheba snookered by the erstwhile lover's request? Or is the repartee on her part a way in which she unmasks Adonijah's wicked heart? Does she realize in the pity party which he intones for himself in verse 15 that this flagrant narcissist is a danger, a threat to her son and to his throne? Is Bathsheba in fact shrewd enough to recognize that Adonijah has not given up his claim that The kingdom was his, and that all Israel expected him to be king. Does Bathsheba play messenger to his request because she knows this request is deadly? A deadly threat against the person and the throne of her son? Does Bathsheba approach the throne room of her son realizing that if she places Adonijah's request before her son, her wise son, he will see it for what it is. He will see it for what it is, a death threat. And does she anticipate that if she faithfully transmits Adonijah's request without embellishment, without commentary, that if she tells it as Adonijah told it, that Solomon will be galvanized into action and Adonijah will be a threat to her son and his throne no more. Is Bathsheba wise messenger of Nathan in chapter 1, any less a wise messenger here in chapter 2. She confounded Adonijah's plot in chapter 1. Deja vu, 
she confounds Adonijah's plot once more in chapter 2. She galvanized David into action in chapter 1. She galvanizes Solomon into action in chapter 2. She mediates a request before the king in chapter 1. She mediates a request before the king in chapter 2. The character of Bathsheba in 1 Kings 2 contains ripples, narrative ripples of the character of Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 1. Our narrator may tempt us with a straightforward, naive reading, but he enriches the character of Bathsheba here He enriches the character of Bathsheba here in the light of establishing her character from the previous chapter. Bathsheba, mother of Solomon, will promote her son to the throne as promised by God, and she will preserve her son on the throne as promised by God. And she will do so by closing the trap on the truly naive reader in this situation. She will spring the trap on naive Adonijah. The death sentence Adonijah feared when he seized the horns of the altar falls upon him as he attempts to seize Abishai. More narrative ripples. Chapter 1, verses 51, 52, with chapter 2, verse 24. Death, death, death to Adonijah. Because Solomon suspects Abiathar, is part of this renewed plot. He deals with the traitor priest next. The proximate cause for banishing the priest is his collusion with Joab and Adonijah, perhaps inciting Adonijah to this latest thrust at the throne. But the remote cause of the displacement of the line of Abiathar and his replacement with the line of Zadok, verse 35, is God's curse. God's curse on the house of Eli. In 1 Samuel 2, 31 to 36, and 1 Samuel 3, 12 to 14. As Hophni and Phinehas invoked God's curse by their cursed betrayal of his holy function of priest, so Abiathar, in betraying his loyalty to the house of David, invokes the curse of banishment. Banishment from the priesthood and banishment from the tabernacle of God in Jerusalem. God's decree... God's decree is fulfilled through human dishonor 
and human irresponsibility. Solomon does not execute Abiathar for his complicity in the plot. Out of deference to his enduring the afflictions of his father, he relegates him to Anathoth, his hometown. And you will notice Anathoth on the smaller map there on your handout, just slightly north of Jabesh or Jerusalem, about three miles outside the city limits. And there in Anathoth, Abiathar and his line disappear. They disappear from the history of redemption. We turn our attention now to the other user in this narrative, Joab. Users are losers. Users are always losers. Adonijah used Bathsheba and lost. Joab used David and Adonijah, and now, at last, he loses. This gray hair flees to the tabernacle of the Lord when he hears of the death of Adonijah and the exile of Abiathar. Why? Why does he run to the horns of the altar? For safety. Because he knows he's next. And he knows he's guilty. Taking hold of the horns of the altar is Joab's confession. Joab's confession that I have been a man of blood since I recognized that David could make me a legitimate killer. Whether on the battlefield as commander of his army or his henchman in the murder of Uriah, or winking at the blood on my belt and my sandals in the murder of Abner and Amasa, or having a pity party when I killed Absalom, David made me a legal killer. And killing power, the rush, the prestige I derive from killing people, People who got in David's way, people who got in my way, the rush I got from being an army killer and the most powerful man in Israel next to David, that power stoked me, stoked me. And I almost got to play puppet master one more time. One more time with that pup, Adonijah. I used him, too, because I could control him. Solomon, Solomon was uncontrollable. I knew he would see through me as even his father never did. Solomon would be wise enough to recognize a user when he saw one. And so I had to prevent Solomon from ascending David's throne if I wanted to extend my power. 
I had to install Adonijah before David was any the wiser. But I didn't figure on the prophet Nathan. Meddlesome, interfering, holy roller prophet Nathan. I couldn't use Nathan. I couldn't make him serve my purposes as I had used David. And so, if God was on Nathan's side, and Solomon's for that matter, I'd better get God on my side or it'd be curtains for Joab. I will use God's sanctuary as a place of asylum and with feigned piety lay hold of the horns of the altar and demand clemency. After all, it worked for Adonijah. He grabbed the horns of the altar and got a reprieve. Should work for me too. No one will notice that I've never darkened the door of the tabernacle before. And who will remember that I never used the Lord's name save in vain? I will appear to be a pious, God-fearing tabernacle-seeking old man claiming the right of sanctuary, sanctuary, sanctuary. You hunchback of Notre Dame fans. Who will dare seize me after I have seized the horns on the altar? But Solomon, Solomon is wise, very wise. And he recognizes a user when it is reported to him. And Solomon knows what to do with loser users. He does not coddle. He does not indulge. He does not wink at insubordination. Solomon does not turn his back on attempted murder from a career murderer. Solomon deals with the evil that is evident in Joab, not to mention the preening hypocrisy, Joab hiding behind religion, grasping the horns of the altar while his hands are covered with blood, innocent blood, Joab, like so many simpering, pious hypocrites using the religion of the Lord God and the tabernacle of the Lord for their crass, manipulative purposes. Solomon does not hesitate. Benaiah may hesitate, but Solomon does not. Execute that old hypocrite on the very horns of his hypocrisy. He thinks he can use the Lord's house to escape what he justly deserves and defiantly dares me and you, Benaiah, to execute him at the altar. Well, then give him his wish. 
and drag out this man of blood and bury him in the wilderness. Did not Moses say, if a man murders his neighbor with malice aforethought, you are to execute him even if he seeks refuge at the altar of the Lord? Exodus 21, 14. How many has Joab murdered? Let the sword of justice devour him whose sword so unjustly has devoured the innocent, even if your sword falls upon him at the altar of the Lord. As Joab shed blood in peace, so in peace shall his blood be shed. And Joab, son of Zeruiah, disappears from the history of redemption. Which leaves Shimei. Shimei. First, our narrator features a scene shift. You will notice from your map, once again the smaller map, that Bahurim is just slightly south and east of Jabesh or Jerusalem. A scene shift in our narration from Bahurim to Jerusalem. Shimei taken from his comfort zone and restricted to the confines of the city of David, Jerusalem. Glorious for situation. On the day he crosses over the brook Kidron to reverse his exile in Jerusalem, on that day his blood will be on his own head. Most commentators consider this detail about Kidron's brook in verse 37 as a mere barrier to Shimei's return to his former hometown in Bahurim, or a limit to his movements anywhere along the valley roads at the confluence of the valley of Kidron and the valley of Hinnom. Perhaps, perhaps, But we must read the text in the light of the narrative ripple revealed here. You will recall that David went over the brook Kidron with his face set towards exile and banishment from Jerusalem at the uprising of Absalom, 2 Samuel 15:23. And as David went eastward up the Mount of Olives down to Baharim, Shimei trailed him, cursing and throwing stones and dust at him. Now Shimei will reverse David's journey. David, whom he cursed and stoned, Shimei will cross over the Kidron westward and set his face towards exile in Jerusalem, 
the city of David. Shimei will be conformed to relive the exile of David, whom he cursed by contenting himself with the city from which David was driven out. And if he reverses the reversal, if Shimei once again reverses his exile by setting his face eastward, crossing over the Kidron and turning his back on the city of David, he will once and for all demonstrate his rebel heart, his cursing and cursed contemptuous rebel heart. In returning across the Kidron, Shimei will be like the dog who returns to his vomit. He will once again curse David and his city and his royal throne by spurning spurning the refuge afforded him in the offer to conform himself to the return of the king, to the return of David, to conform himself, to content himself by living out the reversal even in exile, by living out the reversal of David's exile in his own. Will Shimei, in his about face, in his turnabout, will Shimei live? Live content with turning his back on the town where he cursed the king. Turning his back on the region beyond Kidron where he hurled stones and dust at his king. Will Shimei live in reverse of his former life and environment by taking the refuge extended to him in the city of the great king? Or will Shimei spurn the refuge of the city of God and cross over once more to his old paths, his former ways, his old environment, and his cursed heart. No, the limit set by Solomon at Kidron is not incidental. It is a narrative ripple, a very significant narrative ripple in which Shimei is offered conformity to the life and environs of the king he cursed and abused. Will he turn his back on his former life and embrace the life of the city of David? He says that the terms are good, verse 38. He swears an oath to the Lord, verse 43, that he will live by the terms of his reverse exile, basking in the glory of the son of the father whom he abused, basking in the mercy of the son of the father whom he cursed. No more curse in this city, Shimei, 
Mercy unto life from this king and lord of this city, Shimei. Peace and shalom upon your head from the king of shalom in his royal city, Shimei. Why will you die, Shimei? Why? Because of your evil heart of unbelief. You will not have life. You will not. And so Shimei, rebel-hearted Shimei, cursing-hearted Shimei, abusive-hearted Shimei, and so Shimei, you shall have your heart's desire. And Benaiah fell upon him so that he died. Verse 46. And Shimei disappears from the history of redemption. But the kingdom of David, the kingdom of David is established in his son Solomon and that before the Lord Yahweh Ad Olam unto eternity. Not even Solomon's own pathetic disobedience could annul the grace of the Lord and his promise to the house of David. Though Israel be divided and carried into exile, though the remnant of Judah be invaded and carried into exile, though no Davidites sit upon the throne of Jerusalem from 586 B.C. to 70 A.D., yet the forever feature, verse 33 and 45, the forever feature of God's covenant of grace remains inviolate. And it remains because a forever David remains. A forever son of the Father remains. The forever feature of God's covenant of grace with David and his house remains because that gracious covenant is anchored in a forever person, an eternal person, an everlasting person. The promise to the line of David remains forever because the son of David Son of God remains forever. The protological David is recapitulated and surpassed in the eschatological David. The protological Solomon is recapitulated and surpassed in the eschatological Solomon. Protology and eschatology weaving their way in narrative ripples through the history of redemption. The whole 
history of redemption. The whole history of redemption overshadowed by eschatology. The whole history of protology mirroring eschatology. Eschatology, the key to the whole history of redemption. The eschatological David, the key to the historical David. The eschatological Solomon, the key to the historical Solomon. The eschatological, there, there is the key to the whole history of redemption. And we close the book on the life of David.